0: You're listening to the sermon podcast of Covenant Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. To learn more about us, visit covbap.org. Now, today's sermon. Well, brothers and sisters and friends, why is it that the truth is often best seen through struggle and through tears? Life's catastrophes have a way of uncovering our lack of strength, do they not? They often reveal to us that God works in oftentimes undesired, sometimes unseen, and definitely unexpected ways. So how do you learn that God is your refuge and your strength? Well, because He breaks you and He shows you that you cannot find strength, and that you cannot find refuge within yourself. And this is the goodness of God to us, this side of heaven. Psalm 46 that we'll consider today, it gives us the source of our comfort in this life. It doesn't promise a comfortable life, but it does give us the source of comfort that we might find in this life. The comfort and the hope in Psalm 46, they're grounded in God's faithfulness in his faithfulness to his church from beginning of history to the end of history. The comfort's grounded in God's faithfulness, his faithfulness to his promises, not in our circumstances in this life. And so uh, Psalm 46, it ultimately is a vision of the end of history and it's given Hope to God's church from beginning to end, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trial, in the midst of hardship. For instance, uh, in a biography written of this psalm and of the Reformers, Psalm 46 was the anthem of the Reformation. It was sung at Augsburg during the council and all the churches of the larger region in a former Germany, and often against the protest of the priest, this psalm was sung. It was sung in the streets and it was so heard and it comforted the hearts of the reformers when they were banished from Wittenberg in 1547. It was sung by poor Protestant immigrants on their way into exile and by martyrs at their death. It was woven into the web of the history of the Reformation and it became the true national hymn of Protestant Germany. So keep that in your mind as we consider uh, Psalm 46 today. But also let me make a few comments about our culture uh, today and how we consider Psalm 46. Be still and know that I am God. We have heard it. We've seen it. It's tattooed. It's written. It's on refrigerators. It's everywhere. And it's become this Christian platitude. And the reason that, I want to talk about why that's maybe uh, an aggravation to us. It's not because if we were to just shut our mouths, be quiet and understand who the Lord is, that that wouldn't benefit us. That would certainly benefit us. That is not a wrong interpretation or use of be still and know that I am God. Now the problem comes when that is this magical token that will take away all of our fears in such a way that the the discomfort that our suffering and that struggling in this life brings will just disappear. If we could just be still and know that he is God, then, then we will have such inner peace that anything in this life won't affect us. Nothing will affect us in this life. We'll be so peaceful and calm and serene that nothing will hurt. It's as if we're not even here. That is a wrong use of be still and know I am God. And I want us to consider why that might be the case. Maybe you disagree. Well, hopefully as we go through this text, I might change your mind. But listen to this from from Luther. He says, let us sing the 46th Psalm in concert and let the devil do his worst. And I hope that we leave today with that same mindset. This is true. And so come what may, it is well with our souls. Not it will feel well in our souls. It is well in our soul, with our soul. So this psalm is renowned because it communicates what it means for God to be God. It communicates communicates about what God causes, or it communicates who God is in such a way that it causes us to be still. We have no choice but to be still when we see who God is, and what it means for him to be God. And how he works in unexpected, unseen, and unpredicted ways to bring about his desired purposes in our lives. And without any further comments, I will read Psalm 46 for us. Listen to the holy words of the Lord. To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to the Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar in foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation. for his written word, his word of life, his law, his gospel. Um, Saints, this morning, I want us to look at the text in two parts. That's verses 1 through 7, and then the second part, verses 8 through 11. And then maybe dive deeper about what do we learn about God, and what does that mean for us in this life as it pertains to being still and knowing that he is God. So as that out, with that outlining our time, look into the text, the title of our psalm this morning, the sons of Korah, just a reminder, they were Levites, and it seems that specifically by the time of David, they served in the musical aspect of temple worship. Second thing about the title, this word alamuth, No one really knows what that means, but many think it's a musical term, specifically uh, saying that this would be sung by the sopranos, by a group of girls with high voices. This song would be sung. Spurgeon thinks that it might reference uh, this a high-pitched string instrument. Regardless, it, it doesn't really matter. This is a song. This is a song sung by the Church of Christ for all time, uh, and it's a glorious one. It's one of proclamation. It's one of reminding us who God is. And so as we look to the first strophe, if you will, the first part of this song, we see in verses 1 through 7, that God is a mighty fortress for the poor and the needy. God is a mighty fortress for the poor and the needy. Look with me at, at verse one. God is our refuge and strength of very present help in trouble. The psalmist is saying that in times of great difficulty, in times of great suffering, they have always found God near to them, not away from them and they have to leave the struggle to get to him. In the struggle, they have found God to be near, and they have found him to be a refuge of protection and and strength, one who fights for them in their trouble, in the midst of the pain, the heartbreak, the the near-death experiences, whatever may may be going on. And because of that, he says, verse 2, Therefore, we will not fear. The God who made the world and who covenanted with Israel. He is our God. How irrational would it be for us to fear? Ultimately, is what's being communicated. Why would we fear? God has never let us down. He's our God and he's never let us down. Though we've given him many reasons, countless reasons through idolatry and through doubt and through mistrust that he should not defend us that he should not protect us, that he should not be our strength. Time after time, at the end of the story, God is found near and he's found to be a refuge and he's found to be a strength. So not even our own sin would keep us from knowing that God is near to us and a very present help in times of great difficulty and trouble. And so even if this happens, verse 2 and 3, Even if the earth literally melts away, even if the basis on which all visible things would be convulsed and they would be changed, though the firmest and most dependable things on planet earth, like a mountain, like Mount Everest. Who's going to move Mount Everest? Somebody raise their hand if you would give that a shot. Well, even if that began to move, creation was totally convulsed in the utter chaos thrown into the heart of the sea, what we hear is the church will not fear because God will never change. Let Mount Everest move and shake. Let the very basis of creation be convulsed. God will not change. He will remain faithful to all of his promises. And because God is the foundation and because he is the fortress of his people, There's no danger that will last. There is no danger that will ultimately last. It may be hard for a long time. It may be scary for the rest of our lives. But there is no danger that will last. And Spurgeon says it correctly. Though heaven and earth pass away, we shall not fear because our refuge will preserve us safe from all evil. And he who is our strength will prepare for us all good. Amen, Spurgeon. That's exactly right. When the roar of the suffering, verse 3, when the roar of the suffering and the danger and the threat comes upon the church, faith will not fear. It may kick and scream. It It may say, God, what in the world? Why? But it will not mistrust its good and gracious creator, knowing that he is a refuge in times of trouble. God has been tried and he's been proved by his people. Time after time after time to be a present help, closer than a friend, closer than the trouble is to you. Even if this suffering might be inside of you, in the wrestling of your flesh, the Lord is closer than that in your trouble. He is a help for the people of God. This is why we have this confession over and over in this song. Verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And then verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us. It's the first part of Christ's name there, with us. Emmanuel, with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Verse 11, the Lord of hosts is with us. God of Jacob is our fortress. These are the confessions of the people of God. But but caveat this. The people of God learn that he is a mighty fortress. They learn that he is a very present help. How? In times of need. In the midst of suffering, they find God to be faithful. That's how they know that he is a very present help in times of trouble And then verse four moves on from the roaring destruction of the ocean and the suffering and the instability in this life to a calm, life-giving river with streams flowing that make glad the city of God. This ocean that causes turmoil and, and upheaval in the world to the river that makes the people of God glad. We read from the prophet Ezekiel, but you'll remember uh, that Ezekiel was a prophet to a people in exile. The Lord allowed them to be taken away by very, very evil God haters into exile, away from Jerusalem. And they were tempted to doubt the power of God, they were tempted to doubt the justice of God. And Ezekiel is reminding the people of God's power. He's reminding them of his righteousness, of his justice, and of all of his purpose to do them good, to be faithful to all of the promises that he has ever made. And most importantly, that one promise is that God has actually determined that one day he will be with them forever. There will never be a threat. He will be with them in this city forever. In the name of that city, the Lord is there. Ezekiel prophesized to them. And then in chapters 47 through 48, we, we heard it read today. He paints this picture of the promised land, the new Jerusalem with a rebuilt temple. That temple symbolized the presence of the Lord, the presence of God. And it has a river flowing from it. And it heals everything he touches. You remember back last week from Psalm 24, we can't go into Eden. We can't eat of that tree of life. But one has. Jesus, he ate of that tree of life, and now from the new Eden, from the new Jerusalem, flows a river that brings life eternal and everlasting to all who drink of it. This is the climax of history being painted for us. Zechariah picks up on this in chapter 14 and verse 8, and he says regarding the new Jerusalem, and the temple of God will have living waters flowing from it. This is a huge image in the Old Testament. This is a huge image in the scriptures of the New Jerusalem in this river that gives life. And there's good news. It's not just an image, it's not just a picture. There aren't just words about something that, that could be true. The temple of God came to earth. John 1.14, the word, the word of Ezekiel, the word of Psalm 46, the word of Zechariah showed up not in a temple made with hands, but it showed up in flesh and blood. The word became flesh and it dwelt among us. And, and John says, and we've seen his glory, glory of the unique son of the father, full of grace, full of truth. God came to dwell with his people again. He came in a temple of flesh and blood. And Christ says in another place, in Luke, that everything written about him, in the prophets, in the Psalms, in the law, must be fulfilled. In saints, 40, Psalm 46, Ezekiel 47, and in Zechariah that I mentioned, none of them are exempt from that. And so Jesus, the temple of God, God with us, his presence with his people, of, uh, with his people again, he says this in John 7. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of life. The temple, the true temple of God shows up in flesh and blood. And it says, come drink of me and you will have everlasting In any case, the rivers point to the true refreshment for sinners. The true refreshment which ultimately comes in Jesus Christ. Israel could be removed from all of their suffering, but if they don't drink of the tree of life who is the Messiah, if they don't trust in the promises of God, it doesn't matter how much comfort they get in this life doesn't matter how much comfort you and I have in this life if we don't drink from the river of life. And the water flows, how? From his learning obedience through suffering. His perfect law fulfilling sinless life gives you righteousness. Those rivers flow from his atonement, his betrayal, his flesh ripped to shreds by whips. His muscles penetrated by the points on the cross. His final breath, the Son of God, His final breath leaving His body while His enemies crackled at Him. And they delighted in seeing what they saw and they mocked Him. He who knew no sin became your sin so that you are the righteousness of God. That you would receive his righteousness and be adopted, loved, and known. That is drinking of this river of life. Seeing the Messiah for you and believing in that. And if you've done that, it's not because you have had strength to do that. It's because the Lord in your darkness has shined the light of Christ's face. And you see his righteousness in your place. You see his death for all of your sin and you see the father saying, well done, my good and faithful servant, come on in. You see him ascended by the father right now and your life is hidden in him. And when he returns, you'll be like him to reign with him forever. That is the water of life. And it gives life to the worst of us, to the worst of sinners, the worst of people the most wretched put together lives and the most wretched unput together lives. They're all bad. None of them are holy. Not a single one of us can offer anything to God, anything. Yet we are welcomed into his presence as children without fear of his judgment, without fear of him casting us away. Why? Because the rivers of life have brought us healing. Saints, you're healed and you are his. And so the gospel goes out in this river of life and it builds his church into a temple of his dwelling. This is Ephesians. And then verse 5. Speaking of this holy inhabitation of the Most High being built by those who drink of the water of life, God is in the midst of her. That's why she won't be moved. This is the kind of God with us that casts out all fear. Israel hoped for this day. They knew God's faithfulness and therefore they would ultimately not be moved. They knew he promised to Abraham, one that would come who would bless the nations and they're hopeful for that. Even though it seems like the earth is is giving way, they will not fear because God is faithful to all of his promises. Though the storms of instability of this life, the fiery darts of the evil one come against the church, they come against evil, and unlike the mountains, which are swallowed up by the sea, nothing will move God's people. How could God's people be moved when he has made them his inhabitation? Is somebody going to move God? He is in the midst of us. He has made us the place where he dwells. As soon as God moves, then we can fear that we will move. But as it stands, God doesn't change. He will not move and he has made us his dwelling place. Therefore, we are safe. We are safe. Who's going to move God? It says that God will help her in the morning, the last part of verse 5. God will help her in the morning. Usually the morning is when the war began. Basically, when the the morning comes and the war begins, you won't find God sleeping or slumbering. He's in the midst of us. We won't be moved. He will defend us. He's our refuge. He is our strength. He will be found up, alarmed, and working on our behalf as we wake up in the morning worried about the war. He hasn't been. Verse 6, the nations rage. Continuing on with this, uh, you know, these threats that threaten Israel. Although the nations rage, these political threats, although it seems like a near death experience, the, the kingdoms are tottering, the nations are raging, the Lord speaks and the earth melts. The earth could be convulsing. Nations raging, political turmoil. It feels near death. The earth melts when God speaks. The same word that brought protons and neutrons to form atoms in in creation and and made them solidify to to the existence that we have now will speak and it will all dissolve. If he wanted it to. If he stopped upholding all things by the word of his power, it ceases to be. So come what may, this is our God. But I really think that what we're talking about in verse six moves us closer to what we'll understand in the next section. We're almost thinking about the end of history when the Lord does speak when the trumpets blast and the Lord purges the earth and he, like gold, refines the earth. The earth melts and is refined. I think this is where we jump into the end of history and what can we conclude? That when the sun explodes and the earth melts, the only safe place from the wrath of God will be had by the people of God. In Christ Jesus, uh, our true refuge, our strength, our righteousness. And then verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of angel armies, the God whose voice will melt the earth, who brought it into existence and can dissimulate it. This is our God. And he's the God of Jacob. God has named himself, we, we considered this last time, he's named himself the God of Jacob. The God, the covenant God of weak, pitiful, poor, low-down sinners like you and like me. The best thing about us is God. The God of Jacob. The Lord of hosts is with us. And so moving on to section two, we begin to go to this vision of rest and this vision of peace. Coming off of what we just talked about. Verse eight and nine is an invitation. For those who have ears to hear and eyes to see, to look at this. Come behold the works of the Lord. If you have eyes to see and ears to hear, He's brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. The earth has melted, it's been destroyed, it's been purged by the wrath of God, and the only survivors are those who belong to the city of God and have found refuge in him alone. Now, this psalm spoke is speaking of destruction. It's speaking of destruction to the original audience. It speaks of the same destruction to you and to me. When will war cease? When will evil stop? When will there be no chance for bad to happen? When the Lord speaks the final time, the day of the Lord. And so, verse 9, it almost says, He makes war cease. He ends uh, he, to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. Judgment comes. He destroys all e- evil. And then, verse 10 Be still. Who will be left for the Lord to say this to them? Is my question. Who will hear the Lord when he purges all evil? Who will he say, be still and know that I am God. I'm exalted among the nations. I am Yahweh. I am the creator. I am God. It will be those who belong to the city of God. He speaks this word to us, saints. When his judgment comes, when he Reveals his power and his wrath and destroys all evil, and the dust settles. We will be comforted, not fearful. We will hear our father say, Be still. No need to fear. Look what I've done. Look at who I am. And we will finally see him not with the eyes of faith like we do right now, we will see our father with the eyes of sight. We will see him destroy all evil. And, and I know this is hyperbo- not hyperbolic, hypothetical language. And we will have thought, why was I not destroyed? Why do I stand here with the comforting words of a father saying, Be still? I am God. It is because those rivers of life have healed us of all sickness, of all pain, of all sin, of all unholiness and we've been credited with the holiness of another, and we stand with our arms around our Father, looking at Jesus, if you will. Not a clothing on fire. Be still. I'm exalted. It's all done. The war is over. There's no more battles. The war is over. Rest. Shut your mouth. I am God. See what I have done for you. And we will enjoy that for the rest of eternity. That is what I think is happening. And be still and know that I am God. Speaking of, of the exaltation of the Lord in Revelation 11 and 15, I think I read this last week, it, it bears repeating. There were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever and ever. So be still and know that he is God. That is the outcome of this. And you didn't do anything to be a part of it. The Lord has brought you into this victory. He has brought you into this joy. He's brought you into this stillness. That no matter the instability and the suffering, the sinfulness that you wrestle against and fight against, the things that the Lord has ordained to come upon you in this life, other people's sin, the wreckage of being in a fallen world, no matter what, this is your comfort. The Lord will reign. The Lord will reign. Justice will be had. Evil will be done. And you will hear your father saying, be still. Look what I've done. Spurgeon says, let no man's heart fail him. The soul declarations of verse 10 must be fulfilled. I will be exalted in the earth among all people. Whatever may have been their wickedness or their degradation, either by terror or by love, they will be subdued. All hearts will be subdued to him, either by terror or in love. The whole round earth shall yet reflect the light of his majesty. And this is beautiful. All the more because of sin and obstinacy and pride of man shall God be glorified when grace reigns unto eternal life on all corners of the world. It is a beautiful sentence to think about how the Lord is going to get glory when he Is exalted among the nations and destroys all evil. Because of sin and obstinacy and pride, and the pride of man, shall God be glorified when grace reigns unto eternal life in all corners of the world. And that's where we're headed, saints. And so, right now, I think the Lord, as we read this today, and and, and we're not there yet, I think He is telling us, sit down and shut your mouths. And see that he is God. I think that is an accurate takeaway. Be quiet. Be still. See that I am God. And then we end with that final verse 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The very personification, just to summarize a little bit more, the very personification of God's strength and his refuge, and being a fortress for his people, and a river that gives life to his city, that makes glad the city, is Jesus. Jesus is our present refuge, and he is our future victory. In times of trouble and darkness, we have found him to be our refuge and our strength. Jesus has made himself a refuge for us against the wrath of God, so we can receive, be still. Be still and know that I am God. He's a fortress now against all evils of the world that threaten and come against God's church. And at the same time that all of that is true, you and I have both experienced where God feels less like a safe refuge and a strength and more like a callous bandit, not a compassionate friend, a refuge strength for us in the times of trouble. He's felt less like that and more like some wild, callous maniac putting evil on us. A book I'm enjoying right now, On and Off, uh, puts it really well. And maybe some of you have thought this, how could miscarriages and stillborn babies and Failing marriages and cancers and pain and suffering that seemingly decimates people. You fill in the blank. How in the world could that be part of God's purpose? And in these moments where we are desperate for hope, it feels like all that we can conjure up is doubt. In these moments, church folk like me might look at you and say, be still and know that he is God. Might say, he'll never put too much on you that you can't handle it. Because I don't want to get down there in the pit with you. I don't want to experience your sadness. I'd rather insulate myself with these cute verses that just say, hey, look, God is for you, just, you know. Instead of sitting in the sadness. Because it hurts. Suffering hurts. There are really bad things that happen in this life and they're hard. And, I, and we ask God why? And we're mad that we, that we do have the temptation to mistrust him. We're upset that we do, that our first inclination is to doubt his goodness, not rest in it. We're mad about that while we're mad about the things that are happening, our choices in this life, the sin that we face, the wreckage of it all. And when we keep from sitting with one another in this sadness and in that suffering, and we'd rather just skirt over it with with the cute verse, like, just be still and know that he's God what we do is we actually miss out on what Christ is trying to show us he's like in our relationships. Because when you're in the pit and I get down there with you and I stare you in the face and I'm like, this is hard. I am with you. What the Lord is doing with the family of God is saying, hey, I'm nearer than that brother right there. I'm nearer than that sister who is in the pit with you and who won't let you go and, is, and knows that it's hard. I am closer than that. The Lord Jesus is using us as we bear with one another to show us that He's even closer. That He knows even more how bad it hurts. And He's not going anywhere. Nothing is wrong with the verse. Be still and know that He is God. Nothing is wrong with that verse. Nothing is wrong with saying it. Understanding what we're communicating though. And so... Be still and know that I am God. That begins with, well, what what does it mean for God to be God? That's what I want to reflect on with with our closing moments. What does it mean for God to be God? Number one, we learn from our text today, really in verses 6 through 11, we learn that he's powerful. He's the powerful creator and he's the purposeful king. We learn that he's the powerful creator and the purposeful King. As the powerful Creator, He's in charge. He's sovereign. He's brought all things to be. And we know that all things exist because before time began, He made a covenant with Himself to save a people so that they would know His Trinitarian love and glory forever. And they could experience His goodness forever. And He, in His goodness, enjoys that we his inheritance in the saints this is the beginning this is why things exist he's the powerful creator he's in charge and so everything that has happened since then serves that purpose it serves that purpose it doesn't mean as we know that he protects his people from experiencing suffering in this life in verse one we see in fact that he is a very present help in times of trouble. Other parts of the scripture, we really learned that if God is sovereign, he's behind it all. He has got to be behind every single thing if it's all going to serve that purpose. So he is behind the suffering and the struggle. He is behind reality, and he is orchestrating all things to his desired ends. This is why Job at the beginning of the book says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now, Job suffered terribly. And by chapter 19, he is sinfully charging God with doing wrong. He's totally changed his mindset and he's blaming God for what's happening. You have caused this. You have done this to me. You have allowed this. And... Sinfully doing so. So here there's a confession that, look, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. He's behind it all. And and he did not charge God with wrong. But by chapter 19, he's functionally saying the same thing, but with the attitude of you did this. I hate you. It's functionally saying why? You can save. If you can change, change it. This proves that you're not good. So there is, there is a difference, and yes, God is sovereign, and he's behind everything. And there is a difference in how we understand that, where we are acknowledging that, not in sin, and we acknowledge that in complete sin. Mad at God. Yet James tells us, no one let no one, when they're tempted, say that God is tempting me to sin. And at the same time, Heidelberg 1, we know that God preserves us in such a way that not a hair from our head can fall without my heavenly Father's allowance. All things are working together for my salvation. He feeds the birds. They don't reap or sow. How much more does he care about us? So I bring all this up, and, and, and I feel the tension, too, of like, what in the world? He's behind it all. Mm -hmm. Why? Why does he let things happen? Why does he allow this to happen? Why did he tell Satan to go tempt and, and test Job? Why is God sovereign and there are so many things bad that are happening in my life? I don't know. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But I can promise you this. He is not absent from you In your trouble. I can promise you this that everything is working out for the good of your eternal salvation. I can tell you that no matter what happens in this life, it may be death. A disease may take us out. Things may be very bad for the rest of our lives. And the Lord will remain faithful. He is a refuge. And on the other side of this, you will hear, be still. Look at what I've done. And know this number two. So what does it mean for God to be God? He's a powerful creator. He's a purposeful king. Number two, he is a God who suffers with and ultimately for us. So we have that tension of of, of God's sovereignty and our suffering and the things we face in this life. But know that he is a God who suffers with and ultimately for us. Suffering is the portal that God has entered our lives, i.e., Jesus Christ, humbling himself, leaving glory to put on flesh. There is no suffering that we have ever faced in this life that is like God humbling himself to to be with his creation. That's humility in itself. But then to suffer what you deserve. Our God is a God who suffers. Salvation comes through suffering. And Peter was upset about it. Lord, may it not be you. You you can't talk like that. Let this preach to you that as you see God as one who suffers in in, in your salvation in Christ Jesus, let it preach to you that He's not going to withdraw Himself from you in any affliction. He took it all the way to the grave for you. Whatever you face under his sovereignty, he's not leaving you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. I have a faithful friend. And Jesus is his name. He will not leave. He stands by me, my shepherd, he remains. So yes, he's sovereign in all the things we face, just the nasty, horrible things as a result of sin that God has allowed, but then is using as tools for our sanctification and glory. All this is a mess in our brains. Screams of the glory of God. And Martin Luther remarks about God's work on his saints. God's work in his saints is one thing in appearance, but it's quite a different thing in reality. He seems to kill, but in reality, he's making alive. He seems to wound, but in reality, he's healing. He confounds, and at that very time, he really glorifies. He brings low all the way down to the grave, and at that very time, he's actually bringing to life to a resurrection. And knowing God to be that begins with suffering. First, knowing Him to be a sufferer who suffered for our sake, who took our sin upon Himself, who learned obedience through suffering. And we too will suffer. And let the cross, again, preach to you that the Lord will never leave you. So He's a powerful Creator. He's a purposeful King. That's what it means for God to be God. But He's a sufferer with and for his people. And then lastly, he is exalted. This is what it means that God is God. I read Revelation eleven fifteen earlier. This is our father's world. It ultimately is. But soon all the nations will bow down and say, blessed be the name of the Lord. And they will do that in love, as his saints will, or in terror. And then all things will be made well. Ultimately, we know that as Christ is beside the Father, we win. We win, saints. There is no more ills that will last past the grave. Life may be difficult and we suffer horribly. The Lord will never leave us and we win. We win. There's not a thing that will happen that God is not orchestrating in your life for your eternal good. And so we fight in this life. We fight hard, sometimes in the wrong directions, and we need to be turned around, and we're fighting in that direction. We fight hard because we know the outcome. We know that our labor is not in vain. The mantra of the Reformation was, after darkness, light. This is the kingdom of darkness with which we live, but we drink from the fountain of life. We drink from the fountain of life, even while we're in this kingdom of darkness. While things hurt, while they are terribly hard, while we are fighting not to think of God as a callous monster, we drink from the fountain of life. That Christ is enough for righteousness. Christ is enough for forgiveness. Christ is enough for your resurrection and your glory forever. That's not changing. So to close our time, as we understand that that's what it means for God to be God. There are ways that we understand that, and that steals us. So be still and know that I'm God. What I'm saying is, in knowing what it means for God to be God, we are steeled. In two ways, I think. We could always come up with more, but in two ways. First, we're steeled in our salvation. How did we find Christ to be a refuge? Was it in our strength? Was it in our beauty and our grandeur that we could bring something to the throne of God? No, it was his holy law showing us that you are a wretch. You're the farthest thing from something that could lay eyes on God. You will be destroyed by his holiness forever. And it would be a good thing. In that darkness, if you will, the face of Christ dined on us, and we saw our Savior. We saw a God who suffers for us so that we might be saved forever. And we were granted repentance from our selfishness, from ourselves who were granted repentance to a holy God, not because of our righteousness, not because God looked at us and said, man, you got something that I need because the Lord wanted you, the Lord loves you, that he has made the face and the beauty and the brightness of Christ to shine on your wretched, dark souls. We also were steeled, right, in, in thinking about our salvation. We're also steeled through suffering. We're steeled through understanding God and our suffering. One of, one of my uh, favorite contemporary Christian writers, he says it this way, success is rarely a profitable classroom for sinners. For, for egotistical, wretched sinners like you and like me, success is rarely a good classroom because we take pride in it and we think we've done something. And he goes on to say, in this fallen world in which we live, which is peopled by weak self-centered sinners like you and like me, we tend to find God in the spot. We do not tend to find God in the spotlight of the victories, but we find him in the stomping grounds of the dark nights of the soul. The pages of the Bible confirm that it is in the grips of suffering and heartbreak and pain and trouble and often our own sinfulness that we see the truth most clearly. In Psalm 119 and verse 71, he writes, It was good for me that I was afflicted. Why? That I might learn your statutes. In the suffering, in the trouble, in the daily grind of life, in this fallen world, we learn God with us. In salvation, we're stilled because we can't pay for our sins, we don't have righteousness of our own and we're steeled in our weakness and we see the strength of Christ in our place. But in our suffering, we're yet again met with our weakness. It exposes our false refuges. We've got refuges all over the place. Things that make us feel good when we're suffering. Things that make us feel good when it's hard. Things that make us feel good when nothing really makes sense. All of these false refuges what happens is through suffering and through the darkness and through the grind, the Lord strips us of everything that we could hide with or everything that we could find refuge in. And that in the pit there is where we know and we see that the Lord Jesus is all we got. That his love is all we need. That his righteousness is my only, is, is my only salvation. That his atonement is what has brought me Peace we learn that he is really our everything when we're in the pit and with that said i just want to remind us of how god has named himself the god of jacob he wrestles with his people and you're in the pit life is difficult we struggle with sin we're in the grind the lord wrestles With you, the Lord will never let you go. He's faithful to his promises. And unfortunately, that is the way we best learn those truths. It's through the suffering. So be still, saints, and know that he is God. So as we come to the table, have those things in mind of who the Lord is as the river of life how he is your present refuge, and how he is your future victory. Let's pray.